0: I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And
1: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo
0: News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show.
2: There was an imminent attack. Uh, the orchestrator, the primary motivator for the attack, was Qasem Soleimani attempt to disrupt that plot. You, you all have been talking this morning about the history of who Qasem Soleimani is. He's got hundreds of American lives, blood on his hands. Um, but what was sitting before us was uh, his travels throughout the region and his efforts to make a significant strike against Americans. There would have been many Muslims killed as well, Iraqis, people in other countries as well.
0: That was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo describing the justification for President Trump's extraordinary decision to launch a U.S. drone strike that targeted and killed Iranian Revolutionary Guard Commander General Qasem Soleimani. It was an action that immediately threatened to dramatically escalate tensions in the Mideast. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, vowed a, quote, "...forceful revenge against what he called the criminals who have Soleimani's blood and the blood of the other martyrs on their hands." As he made those comments, the Pentagon revealed it is rushing thousands of fresh U.S. troops to the region. What do we know about the intelligence that prompted Trump to pull the trigger on Soleimani? And how close are we to an actual war with Iran? We'll discuss with Yahoo News' ace intelligence reporters Jenna McLaughlin and Zach Dorfman, who is also of the Aspen Institute. And we'll talk to Bernie Sanders campaign manager Jeff Weaver on the bombshell new fundraising numbers that have certified the Vermont senator as a genuine frontrunner in the battle for the Democratic nomination. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Michael Isikoff, chief investigative reporter for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeland editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. So quite an opening few days of 2020. Things have been a bit slow over the holidays. And then, wow, bam, we're back. It looks like we're on the verge of uh, a military confrontation with Iran, an impeachment trial that may or may not begin next week, and this phenomenon of Bernie Sanders' acing all his Democratic rivals in fundraising, certifying him as a genuine threat to win the Democratic nomination. Not much going on.
1: No. A typical week in uh, (laughs) the—actually, a typical week in some ways in the Trump presidency. Uh, We don't necessarily know everything that's going to happen, but we know there are going to be fireworks all the time, so much for the impeachment lull. By the way, to our listeners, if I sound unusually sexy— uh, this week. <laughs> yeah, I'm
0: not. I think we're already getting tweets coming in about just how yeah. sexy you sound. I've gotten um,
1: cold that probably about seventy percent of you guys have already had. Right. So uh, just bear with me.
0: All right. Um, on on to uh, more pressing matters uh, than your health, and that is the health and welfare of thousands of Americans in the Middle East right now in the wake of this uh, drone strike. You know, I gotta say, we've had the raid that killed. Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, at the end of October, but we haven't had too many high-profile drone strikes in the Trump era. In fact, this has, has to be, and I know this is a subject that you are well versed in, having written kill or capture, we haven't had a high-profile drone strike since, I think, al in Yemen in, uh, what was that, 2011 or so? 2011, yeah. yeah.
1: You know, this is different in a one- really fundamental way than all of the high-profile drone strikes that we witnessed and read about over the last uh, couple of decades. You know, Soleimani was a pretty bad guy, and, um, you know, you could even call him a terrorist, but he was also the number two person, essentially, the, the second most powerful person in the Iranian government. This is a country, this is a state, and he is a political leader. Some thought he might even one day be the head of the government in Tehran. So to assassinate someone who is that high profile, that core to the regime in Iran, on the one hand, is a big blow to the Iranian regime. On the other hand, it is a hugely provocative act. Now, the question as to whether it was a legal strike is going to depend in large part on what Pompeo, now the evidence that either supports or doesn't support, what Pompeo said in that clip that we just ran. If there was indeed, if Soleimani was plotting an imminent attack, then under domestic law and international law, which is just, just as important here, that would be could be a justifiable
0: strike. Well, you know, Um, look, the uh, Obama folks uh, wrote the the game book for this, and they wrote the memos that justified the drone strikes that killed Alaki and lots of others. And what did they base it on? This is something you and I both reported on extensively back in the Obama years. But if an individual poses what U.S. intelligence officials believe to be an imminent threat, then a president is justified in launching a lethal attack to That's protect right. and, and Americans. And, and but let me just add one other point. And, you know, when we finally got the memos or a memo that underlied, say, the uh, that justified the uh, alaki strike, we saw just how squishy that imminent standard is. In fact, the uh, memo written, drafted by Justice Department lawyers and turned into a white paper that was shared on a confidential basis with Congress said that imminent did not necessarily have to mean that there was a strike about to happen perpetrated by the particular target. It could mean that there was general intelligence about a threat and that the target based on past actions could be presumed to be intimately involved in ordering that attack. It was a very elastic standard, and I think given the precedent sent by the Obama folks, the Trump people have a lot of leeway here to justify, at least on the basis of those memos, this sort of strike.
1: I agree with you 100 percent. In fact, I remember when I was reporting killer capture, an Obama administration lawyer saying to me, well, you don't have to be strapping on your suicide vest or getting on the plane with bombs or be even anywhere near to doing those things. It's a much more general threat. The definition, as you put it, became much more elastic. The issue here is that while this strike may have even likely was legal under Article 2 of the Constitution and the uh, self-defense doctrine, the question is, was it a wise thing to do? Was it a prudent thing to do? Is this going to end up getting us into a war with Iran, a hot war. We have been in a cold war and proxy wars. This threatens to put us really into a real war that could involve the deaths of thousands and thousands of people, including many Americans who are vulnerable, not just in Iraq and other parts of the region, but in Europe and in the United States, we're going to talk with uh, Zach and Jenna about the Iranian capabilities of actually striking Americans, not just in the, in the region, but elsewhere as well.
0: Right. As if nothing else was going on, um, we have the looming impeachment of the president, a looming impeachment trial of the president. As we speak, uh, McConnell and Schumer have just had their sort of dueling standoff about whether there's going to be a uh, precondition for calling witnesses. But I got to say, you know, we've had lots of talk over the last year about all the analogies with the Clinton. Clinton impeachment. This Soleimani strike is a vivid reminder that as Bill Clinton was being impeached, he launched airstrikes against Saddam Hussein in Iraq, which was widely seen or suggested by many Republicans as a wag the dog response to impeachment, to divert public attention from the charges against the president. And one does have to wonder if we are seeing a replay of that right now.
1: Yeah, in fact, I think Clinton did it multiple times. Didn't he do it around the time that Monica Lewinsky was was in the grand jury? Yes, there he did. It. strikes against the strikes on Afghanistan and Sudan and look wag the dog, of course, refers to the Barry Levinson movie, where a uh, president essentially concocts a war to distract from uh, his own sex scandal. But look, I actually think that what Trump has done here might actually do the opposite. In some ways, it could actually underscore some of the very problems that were at the root of the Ukrainian scandal, right? You've got an utterly unsophisticated – a president with an utterly unsophisticated understanding of American foreign policy, a bankrupt national security decision-making process – And a commander in chief who's surrounded by sycophants who don't challenge him even on the most consequential life and death decisions. So I don't know how effective this will be as a wag the dog strategy, unless of course we do end up in a full scale war, which I don't think will be helpful uh, to the president, even as he goes uh, into impeachment.
0: Well, lots of material to uh, talk about there, and I should just add one more. We're going to have Jeff Weaver, Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, on. We were originally going to make this show, I think, primarily about Bernie rising, all the indicia that he is uh, becoming a genuine front runner, if not the front runner, certainly a top contender for the Democratic nomination, even though so many of us inside the beltway had kind of written him off for much of the last year. But let's remember, Bernie Sanders is the one guy who, from the get-go, has opposed higher military spending, who voted against the Iraq War, who has tried to reorient American priorities to the domestic front, health care, and then sort of more widely, I guess, climate change. But how he responds to this and how that works, works in the context of a Democratic nomination. Does it help his chances or not? It'll be a good topic to explore with Mr. Weaver.
1: Well, last night, Bernie Sanders, I think, thought it helped him, not that he would cynically exploit military action to help his campaign. But he did, I will note, cut an ad in the halls of what looked like a hotel room making all the points that you just made about him. So at least in the the short run, I think he thinks it's going to help him.
0: Right. And before we go to Zach and Jenna, I thought it'd be worth just taking a look back at uh, the many different positions that Donald Trump has had about Iran. And we've got a bite here from Trump speaking in 2011 criticizing then-President Obama on the grounds that he was going to get us into a war with Iran. Let's listen.
1: Our president will start a war with
4: Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate. He's
1: weak and he's ineffective. We have a real problem in the White House. So... I believe that he will attack Iran sometime prior to the election because he thinks that's the only way he can get elected. Isn't it pathetic?
0: <laughs> well, well, this from the uh, guy who later became president and basically pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement, showing his disdain for negotiations with Iran, and has now killed who was uh, perhaps the guy who was perhaps the second most powerful leader in Iran. So, perhaps Isn't it rich? <laughs> isn't it Isn't it rich? All right, let's get on with our guests. Okay, we now have with us two of the best intelligence reporters around right now, both of whom happen to work for Yahoo News, Jenna McLaughlin and Zach Dorfman. Jenna and Zach, welcome back to Skullduggery.
5: Great to
0: be here. Thank you. And quite an auspicious day to do it uh, for both of you guys. Zach, we have had you on before to talk about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and all the aggressive actions they take against the United States, uh, spearheaded and led by General Soleimani, uh, now uh, the late General Soleimani. Why don't you start out by telling us a little about just who he was and why he was is so significant.
5: Yeah. I mean, there is no analogous person to Qasem Soleimani in the Iranian regime or, I mean, potentially in, in any other adversarial regime to the United States in the world. Soleimani was the head for decades of the Quds Force, which was the Revolutionary Guard's kind of covert operational wing. and. You know, they were kind of a, a hybrid, a combination of, of if you took the CIA and then maybe also the Joint Special Operations Command, so U.S. Special Forces. And they were also a highly ideological entity. So they were devoted to protecting and spreading the 79 revolution. So they did things that other intelligence agencies do, that other special forces organizations do. But they were also involved directly in spreading the revolution and building connections with other radical Shia movements all over the Middle East and beyond. And most prominently, that uh, was Lebanese and is Lebanese Hezbollah, which has been a a, a major and and to this day is now a dominant player in um, in Lebanese politics. And so Soleimani was also directly involved in the post-2003 order in Iraq, and the overwhelming Iranian influence that has characterized Iraqi politics since the American
0: invasion. And also, I should point out that there had been, according to U.S. officials, a, a pretty steady uptick in attacks on U.S. forces and U.S. bases in Iraq. I think uh, something like 11 over the last few months. A U.S. contractor, of course, killed most recently What was the sort of strategic calculus for Soleimani if he was indeed behind these attacks for that uptick in aggressive actions?
5: I mean, we're speculating a little bit. I imagine it was to keep the U.S. presence kind of on unsure footing. The Iranians had a pretty good idea that they could never get rid of the Americans entirely, but they saw limiting or circumscribing U.S. influence as a, a primary goal of their activities in Iraq and ratcheting up the pressure slightly over time was a way to increase pre-existing divides within Iraqi society, which falls sometimes alongside sectarian lines, and also creating dissension within U.S. policymaking communities about the, the best path forward. Arguably, they've been pushing the limits over and over again over these last few months. And they have been not really, there hasn't been a particularly strong U.S. response. I mean, even after there was an attack on Saudi facilities, and that calculus obviously changed quite radically um, in the last 24 hours.
1: Well, Zach and, and Jenna uh, jump in as well. We talked about Suleimani's strategic calculus, but what about Trump's strategic calculus to the extent there is one here? Because, as you point out, Iranian forces or proxies have been killing American soldiers. For a couple of decades now in Iraq, and I think General David Petraeus, who oversaw the Iraq war, I think he said that, that at least 600 American soldiers were killed directly or indirectly by Soleimani or orders given by Soleimani. So why now? Presumably, the Americans would have had opportunities in the past under several presidents to do this, and they didn't. Why didn't they? And why do you think Trump did now?
3: Sure. So. It's not totally clear yet. It's been less than 24 hours since the strike. However, we've seen some reports that there were imminent threats potentially to American lives. I think there was at least one report that there could have been the potential of kidnapping. Um, The Trump administration is going to hammer home that they prevented something catastrophic. And we'll have to see what that evidence looks like. I mean, potentially as early as next week, I think we'll probably see some of their legal justifications. I'm not sure if those were prepared in detail prior. It's it's unclear to me. I think probably the most frequent refrain that we hear in this administration is, what was the plan? Is there a plan? And that's not clear yet. I think in terms of looking back into the past, some of the sources I've been communicating with for, you know, the last... 24 hours or so have pointed at the fact that, of course, the Obama administration and the Bush administration have looked at options like this in the past. However, particularly with Obama, who was perhaps a fair amount more risk averse than President Trump, he essentially came to the conclusion that we cannot determine what the actual operational consequences of this decision would be. And at the same time, the amount of potential for collateral damage is just far too high to accept it. And I think that's been the key point that has been driven to me from you know recently retired former CIA officials, national security officials. They say, you know, no one is sad that Soleimani is gone. However this massive, massive risk of escalation is something that's at the forefront of their minds and and they wonder if there could have been a different option.
0: So let's talk a little about what the Iranians might do now. You know, they certainly have the strong militia presence in the region, in Iraq, in Syria. Or they're backing the Houthis in Yemen. But their potential to strike back at us is quite wide ranging from cyber, from economic uh, sabotage, going after the oil fields in Saudi Arabia, like they did uh, a few months ago, to even potential terrorist attacks in the United States. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But give us the big picture, Jenna, on where you see the potential for an Iranian response here.
3: So I think you covered some of those options decently well. I mean, it, it could be a range of things. A lot of people I've been talking to have said it would be hard without a crystal ball to see exactly what they're going to do. Uh, however, Soleimani favored sort of asymmetrical warfare, and it's likely that his allies that remain alive will continue that tradition. Cyber is certainly one option. When I speak to cybersecurity experts who are familiar with arena capabilities, they say that we should not underestimate them. We had reported back when the tankers were struck in the Strait of Hormuz that. Iranian officials are on top of this. They know where those ships are, when they're transiting those straits, and they have full capability to do something destructive. We've already seen that they have. They could target diplomats in the region. They could target allies in the Gulf, in Saudi Arabia, in Israel. There are just so many different options, and they could combine several of them. It's really not clear yet what they'll choose.
1: But Jenna, you've got some. I think you've got some reporting that FBI or former FBI officials are actually worried about the possibility of the Iranians striking out in the United States. And I think, Zach, you also wrote a piece for us about all the different ways that they could do that. I mean, they've got long been rumored to have Hezbollah cells that could be activated in this country. What could they actually do on U.S. soil and would they cross that line into, say, assassinations?
3: I'll let uh, Zach address that at more length, but I did speak to at least one former FBI official who said that the first on their list of concerns is whether or not uh, some of these cells within the U.S. would be activated. I mean, Zach's written extensively about that.
5: Yes, I mean, I think that's an obvious concern. I think that there there, was, there has been a long-running debate within the U.S. intelligence community about whether they would actually resort to those kinds of measures because of the potential for a overwhelming, catastrophic response by the United States. The thinking on that changed, I think, in 2013, this is off the top of my head, when the, the Revolutionary Guard did try to assassinate the Saudi ambassador in a Washington D.C. restaurant,
0: a plot um, that was plot. supposedly ordered by Soleimani himself.
1: Exactly by Soleimani himself, and, and, and so and by the way, I'm sorry, by the way that might have killed hundreds uh, or or dozens uh, of Americans if it was going to take place in a restaurant. And I I'll just uh, note that I actually interviewed John Brennan on the morning that that plot was announced. He had been up all night dealing with it, and he looked spooked. You were just saying, Zach, that uh, that kind of calculation changed at that moment. I think that really scared the shit out of intelligence officials in the United States. It really did, and it, it made them think more
5: seriously about the fact that the Iranians and their proxies, particularly Hezbollah black ops, might go beyond mere planning to actually execution of these acts. And, you know, there's been a few recent court cases um, that have brought this home. One was. The conviction of a of a man in new york city area named ali kurani who yep. uh, was- zach
0: let me stop you there because i anticipated uh, somebody bringing this up and it is a sober reminder that there's some reality behind uh, some of the talk you're hearing from us today this is just last month just one month ago december 3rd 2019 a U.S. citizen and New York resident who spied for Hezbollah considered himself a, quote, sleeper agent of the terror group and called this family the Bin Ladens of Lebanon has been sentenced to 40 years in federal prison. Ali Karani was recruited, trained and deployed by Hezbollah's Islamic Jihad organization to plan and execute acts of terrorism around New York City, said Jeffrey Berman, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Quote, and this is the U.S. attorney in New York speaking just last month after spending." spending years conducting surveillance on the city's critical infrastructure, federal buildings, international airports, and even daycare centers. He is now the first Islamic Jihad organization operative to be convicted and sentenced for his crimes against the United States. That was kind of an eye opener. I remember when I read it just a few a short weeks ago, but now it sure looms pretty large. Yeah, I mean, he
5: was, he you know, he was, assembling target packages, as you said, for federal buildings. Um, He was also looking into assembling arms caches and was doing research uh, online for Jewish and Israeli businessmen in the New York area who had been members of the Israeli military. And that was a real serious case. There's was another case recently of a conviction of two men, one by the name of Gorbani and one by the name of Dostar. Those are both Iranian men. One was a, a dual citizen and One of the men traveled to Chicago and was conducting reconnaissance on um, a a Jewish community center in Chicago and also um, Iranian dissidents in Los Angeles and New York. So, yes, they do have these capabilities. This is something that U.S. intelligence community officials are very aware of, especially in areas with large Iranian and um, Lebanese populations in particular. So Los Angeles, San Francisco, Detroit, New York – and it's something that I think over the coming days and weeks is going to give FBI counterintelligence in particular a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of heartburn, and they're, they're probably going to be particularly focused on this. I'd say the only other thing I would mention is that it's not just the U.S. I mean, the, the Iranians and Hezbollah also have a very active presence in South America, including in the tri-border region where Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil meet, and they have successfully carried out very large terrorist attacks. In the 1990s, in particular, I, in that region.
1: What I wonder, Zach and Jenna, is you know, we're talking about large terrorist attacks, talking about the kind of terrorism that Americans are familiar with for all these years where civilians are targeted. But given the assassination of Soleimani, I wonder if the Iranian thinking is that political assassinations, you know, that would be proportional to what the Americans just did as opposed to going after civilians. Now, that's harder. But, Zach, I think you reported that there were a number of assassination plots that were underway. That uh, I, I'm going to read a quote from a story that you uh, wrote for us. I think this was uh, U.S. officials and Israelis. Maybe they were not in the U.S., maybe they were in Europe. But the quote from your story was, uh, from, a, from a source of yours, these were cases where people had been assigned planes tickets were purchased, weapons caches were in place, plans were being activated. It had gotten that far.
2: Uh, yes,
1: this was something that
5: occurred in the last four or five years and was directly related to the defection of a um, former military official by the name of Monica Witt. This was seen at the time, according to the, uh, the former intelligence officials that I spoke with, as another a very serious escalation because they had successfully identified undercover defense intelligence officials. And it appeared that they were ready to carry out what U.S. officials believed were imminent assassinations. They didn't take place, but this is something that used to be seen as a red line. But now, again, Soleimani, whether you think Soleimani is a terrorist or not, you know, and certainly he was an exporter of terrorism, he was a senior military official in the Iranian government. And I think that's very true that. They might aim for something that they consider to be more proportional, which is lethal action against senior U.S. military or intelligence officials instead of civilians.
0: Now, this is sort of like uh, equivalent to the Iranians assassinating the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or somebody at that level, which is why this is such a provocative action. Just one thought. I mean, I remember all the talk post 9-11 about al-Qaeda sleeper agents uh, in the United States and the hunt to, to find them. How many Hezbollah sleeper agents do U.S. intelligence officials believe are actually out? out there in the United States today? Jenna?
3: That's a great question. I asked it yesterday of my source, and they were not willing to share. But they said what they're what they're more worried about is the ones they don't know about.
0: Yeah. Well, that's always the case, exactly. isn't it? Right. A pretty uh, sobering topic to start off the new year. But before we leave, you guys did a great piece about the sort of new challenges for U.S. intelligence agencies in the digital age, which ran a few days before all this uh, Iranian news broke. Jenna, just tell us very briefly what you found in that report.
3: Sure. So, I mean, it's a long story, 5,000 words or so, but I'll try to summarize as best as I can. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. essentially, we, we wrote about the last couple decades in how technology has fundamentally transformed the job of intelligence officers, particularly those who go undercover to gather human intelligence, and that work is becoming next to impossible to do. Intelligence officers have to operate under their real names. They work extremely closely with the private sector, wittingly and unknowingly in some instances. The intelligence community has tried to address these problems in a couple different ways. We were the first to report that they had created a station of the future that was somewhere in Latin America where they wanted to reimagine tradecraft as it currently exists. They wanted to test out new technologies, fundamentally transform how they do business, but as often happens in bureaucracies, it was sort of reduced back in Langley to this expensive proposal to sort of create open office floor plans for CIA stations around the world. And Isn't it's that what sort
0: Bloomberg done... is proposing for America, <laughs> exactly, that's... open office floor plans? It's funny plans. that those came yeah. out around the
3: same time. Right. But essentially, the story has many different revelations, including that the FBI's program for cover operations called Stagehand had... A massive compromise within recent years. Uh, this work is incredibly difficult, and it will continue to be. And the conversation about where do we go from here needs to start now before we have you know the next Snowden revelation. I think. Right. Well, I, I think well, it's fair I'll to let me s-
1: just say. Okay. Just say first of all, it's an amazing story. I just want to say it is a part of a series of stories that this dynamic duo have uh, reported and written for Yahoo News, all about how. Our spying capabilities, our secrets have been compromised by the evolution of technology. Very, very important stuff. My question, after having read this last installment of your series, is what is John Le Carre or the next John Le Carre? what are they going to do if there's no longer human spies? So we'll have to see how inventive uh, <laughs> uh, spy writers can be. But uh, Zach and, and Jenna, thank you so much. Uh, You two are the perfect guests for this show and and for this story. So uh, thanks for coming on and and, uh, we'll have you both back on again soon.
3: Looking forward to it.
0: Thank you. We're now going to uh, switch gears a bit and talk Democratic Party politics, and we've got a special guest here in the studio, one of the top contenders for the Democratic nomination, Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery.
4: Mike, thank you for having me here to discuss this existential threat to our country, Too Many Podcasts. They're all about true crime, and the true crime is the podcasts coming at Americans from the corporate media.
0: Right. Podcasts for billionaires. That's what we like to view uh, Skullduggery as. Actually, it's not Senator Sanders. It's <laughs> our colleague, Hunter Walker, who does one of the better Bernie Sanders imitations uh, around.
1: Hunter, Hunter, you're going to give Larry David a run for his money. Sure. <laughs> right. We want
0: you win. on Saturday Night Live. That's that's my goal for 2020. But we do have a good alternative to the senator, and that is his campaign manager, Jeff Weaver. Calling in, Jeff. Welcome to Skullduggery.
2: Hey, how you doing? And uh, just for, just for complete, tra- so I'm the senior advisor on this campaign. I was the campaign manager in 2016, but I am a senior advisor on this campaign. Okay,
0: we stand so corrected. Do,
2: correct. do, oh, you, no problem.
0: Do you want to uh, rate Hunter's uh, Bernie imitation there? Give it a grade.
2: Well, I'd give it, I'd give it, uh, i give it a B plus, B plus,
0: a B plus. Oh. Well, Ooh. you, you um, know, I'm Jeff, a top I've, 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 I'm a
2: top grader. I'm a top grader.
0: Well, I've also heard that
4: most people on the campaign have their own. Senator Sanders' impression. Are are you one of the people who can do it?
2: I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't comment on that. I can't. Oh, can't comment. Or it's All right. It's it's classified. It's classified. Senator at Senator
0: Jeff, I want to tell you uh, why I wanted to have you on this week on this podcast, which is over the holidays, I was over at my sister's uh, in New Hampshire, all her uh, kids were there, 20-somethings, and man, did I get a mouthful of Bernie mania. They were talking about Bernie nonstop, them, their friends, their significant others, and it made me wonder if those of us sort of beltway inside. Who had been sort of discounting your guy's candidacy or chance of going all the way has made me rethink that. And then, of course, no sooner does that happen than first BAM Politico says Democratic insiders say Bernie could take the nomination. And then you announce your fundraising numbers, $34 million, you know, mopping the floor with all your rivals. Give us your take on where you stand right now. Is Bernie the front runner?
2: Well, look, I I think that the campaign has moved forward uh, quite a bit since the summertime. you know, I think in the summertime there was a lot of uh, folks who were kicking the tires on other candidates. I think those folks have started to come home to Bernie. And, you know, the kind of excitement that you heard, you know, during the holidays is something that we encounter on the road all the time when we go out with Bernie. So it is true that folks inside the Beltway, I think, really sort of missed it a little bit. They missed it in 2016, certainly, and I think they're missing it now. But You know, I think you see with the fundraising numbers, I think you see with the events and the turnouts, I think you're seeing that sort of groundswell of support that's going to be critical to him winning.
0: So as you look at it right now, we are exactly one month away from Iowa and then uh, five weeks away from New Hampshire. How does it look in these early states right now? Do you expect you're going to win in Iowa? And if you don't, you have to finish in the first top two or three, and then take it from there, state by state, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. How's it looking?
2: Yeah, well, look, we've got strong ground games in, in every one of those states. Uh, you know, in these early states are smaller states, and and so having a, a an operation on the ground is incredibly important. You know, we have over 200 people on the ground in Iowa, paid people. We have thousands of volunteers. So, you know, we're doing the kind of organizing that one does, particularly in a caucus state like uh, Iowa or Nevada, you know, where turnouts are much lower, and so you know the kind of grassroots organizing that that you do, uh, really pays off in terms of increasing your percentage total on caucus night. Uh, New Hampshire operates is strong. South Carolina operates is very strong. You know, Bernie's running second in South Carolina. And you know the things that's uh, you know different about this campaign, at least the acknowledgement that, that that what is going on is that you know Bernie really is building a multiracial coalition, a multiracial movement. Uh, that happened last time. You know, once the campaign was in swing, but there was this terrible false narrative about the lack of support among people of color. But, you know, we've seen now the following. Bernie is running second with African-Americans in a crowded field. He typically runs first with Latino voters all across the country. So, you know, it, it's really opened up a lot of opportunity to win in places like Nevada and South Carolina.
1: Well, and, and Jeff, you've done some things differently this time around, right? In 2016, there were a lot of really big rallies and you were generating a lot of excitement, not to say that you can't still Draw big crowds, but the center seems to be uh, as interested in, in, in a kind of a more grassroots approach smaller smaller groups. Is that something that, that you decided a long time ago? How did that strategy kind of evolve?
2: well, look, you know this campaign is very different than the last campaign. you know well into the fall of two thousand and fifteen there are a lot of states where our polling showed that forty percent of people either didn 't know who he was or didn 't have enough information to make, to make an opinion about him. and so it was important to do big rallies to demonstrate, you know, the sort of broad base of support that he has all across the country. You know, those became national headlines and cable news stories that went into everybody's living room, and I think really validated the campaign of somebody again who was not universally known like he is now. So, you know, it's a very different posture of the campaign, and and people do know who he who he is. You know, his uh, name ID is well over ninety five percent, most places at ninety nine percent, and people have a sense of uh, what his positions are, you know, he fights for working class people and then he's for Medicare for all and uh, some other signature issues. And so, you know, this, this time around, is more of a conversation with voters who already know who he is and, and uh, you know, uh, meeting them in a different way. So, yes, it was, you know, decided, you know, a while back that we were going to try to have these more, you know, I say more intimate, but, you know, there's still many hundreds of people at these quote unquote smaller events. But, you know, we're trying to uh, create uh, opportunities for Bernie to interact with people in a more personal way.
1: Quick tactical question because a big difference between 2016 and this election is California, which moved up and could be you know a really important state for uh, for Sanders, particularly if he comes out of New Hampshire with a win and ahead of steam and then into Super Tuesday eventually. At what point did you realize the importance of California?
2: Oh, we knew the importance of California you know immediately. You know he did very well there last time, even though the AP had called the national race the night before the California primary and. 2016, You know, he did incredibly well there. He has a a tremendous support uh, in California. And, you know, as you know, it has the largest number of delegates of any state in the process. And so having that state uh, move early was incredibly important for his uh, prospects. You know, it is also a big state, as you know, and very expensive to operate in. And, you know, that does favor candidates who have access to more resources. And so, you know, we have the largest operation on the ground in California. Right now we have over 80 people in California on the ground. You know, we plan on having, you know, a paid media campaign out there as well. So uh, California is critical to us and and, uh, we're investing a lot of time and resources in California for sure. So and look, again, you know, Bernie's strength among uh, Latinos is uh, going to help him uh, immensely in
0: California. Right, um, Jeff. Look, at the top of the conversation today is uh, the events in the Middle East, uh, in the aftermath of the um, U.S. strike that killed General Soleimani, and the uh, prospect that we could be having a military confrontation with Iran. Now, your guy, Senator Sanders, has been the most outspoken critically of U.S. military adventurism overseas. He famously voted against the Iraq war, uh, the only Democratic candidate to have done so. But we have the information, or at least the claims from U.S. officials in the Trump administration that General Soleimani was planning an attack against U.S. personnel in the region and that this was a preemptive strike. So just to be clear, if Bernie Sanders were president of the United States and he was presented with the intelligence that General Soleimani was planning an attack against military uh, U.S. personnel in the region, would he not take the kind of strike that President Trump ordered, or would he do so?
2: Well, I, look, I don't, I don't I haven't seen the intelligence. Obviously, none of us have. And, uh, you know, Bernie has been speaking on this issue, and I think he's going to be speaking more on this issue. So I don't want to get a, ahead of him on this particular front. So I'll let him you know, speak on this. You know, critically important foreign policy. issue. So I think he's much better to do it himself than to have me sort of opining about but, it.
0: But but you can give us a perspective on how he views issues such as this, because it is critical if you want to be commander in chief to be clear about how you would respond to protect U.S. interests around the world.
2: Yeah, look, and he's been very clear that he would use military force to protect American lives and American interests. He has this no secret to anybody. He has been very. Uh, critical of uh, foreign adventurism, of uh, wars that he perceives as unnecessary. You know, we all know the Iraq War, you know, longest war in our history was, you know, predicated on uh, faulty information about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And, you know, our involvement there today and this this, uh, incident that we're talking about today, you know, has its roots back in, you know, those votes that took place to to authorize the Iraq War, which, as you pointed out, he voted against. So, you know, I think you would find somebody who, unlike Trump, you know, would try to make alliances and work with countries of goodwill as opposed to hanging out with dictators and would try to create an environment where we can resolve conflicts without war. I mean, but, you know, understanding, understanding he has been very clear that he would not hesitate to protect Americans.
1: I just want to follow up with one question, and then I want to let Hunter, because sure. uh, I know he's got some questions. And this is on Senator's historical record on wars. And, you know, you pointed out this is not a purely anti-war candidates voted, I think, for military action in Kosovo. I think he voted to the war in Afghanistan. He supported that, though not Iraq. But one war that he voted against was the, the Gulf War back in uh, 1991. And you know, that is exactly where people look back at that war. They they hold out George H.W. Bush and his administration for putting together the kind of coalition that you just mentioned. And I guess my question is, what, what is his argument against that war after all, you know, that was a, uh, we put together this coalition to enforce international norms and to vindicate, you know, the principle that other countries can't freely invade their neighbors. Why wasn't that a just war, in his view?
2: Well, uh, look, uh, you know, a majority of Democrats in the Congress at that time voted against the first, uh, the Gulf War, including Joe Biden when he was in the U.S. Senate voted against uh, that I guess war. I the question uh, was,
1: that mis- was that a mistake? to vote against it, no, in hindsight. No,
2: No. No. look, the question is, you know, did they put together a, a, a multinational coalition? Yes, they did. And, you know, if you look at statements of the, at the time from a number of people, again, including then-Senator Biden, you know, I think there was a strong sense among Democrats that not every a step short of war had been taken in order uh, to resolve uh, that conflict. So, you know, that's the issue. The question is, how quickly you go to war, and are there other options that you can employ short of war that will achieve your ends, which is always preferable. And in that case, I think the opinion of a majority of Democrats and Senator Sanders or Congressman Sanders at the time was that not every step had been taken by the administration to resolve that conflict short of war
4: so jeff I'd, I'd love to pivot back to the the race for a second so much of the conversation about the democratic primary has been focused on these national polls where you know nationwide joe biden does have about a 10 point lead over senator sanders but the the picture in the early states looks much different and you know in iowa and new hampshire biden's running third in both of those behind uh, sanders and pete Buttigieg. You guys have said there was a quote-unquote Bernie blackout in the media, Uh, but as we've been discussing, it seems like you know there's a lot more mainstream recognition that he's a front runner now. Why do you think it's taken so long for that to be recognized? And what do you think? You know, when you say there is a quote-unquote blackout, what do you think is behind that?
2: First of all, your observation about the polling uh, is absolutely correct, and as you know, as you all know, who have you know watched presidential politics before in primaries, you know, early state success tends to change the polling in later states. So you know, uh, uh, success by Senator Sanders in these early states will, in fact, move those national numbers as well once we get into the voting season. You know, in terms of the Bernie blackout, look, I, just, I think that if you went around to edit editors at various news entities uh, around Washington, D.C., and said, do you personally believe that Bernie Sanders can get elected president of the United States, that most of them would say no, because he doesn't speak to them, right? He's not speaking to the needs of Newspaper editors, right? They're much more comfortable with uh, Elizabeth Warren or somebody who's, you know, more of a traditional political figure. You know, Bernie Sanders speaks to working-class people. He speaks to marginalized communities, and that's not who is, uh, you know, running news entities. And so, I think there's a lot of personal bias. There was an article I read recently about centrist bias in, in the media in general. This sort of idea that fair coverage means essentially you cover things right down the middle, even if one side's clearly right or one side's clearly wrong. And I think that, that that's to play as, as well.
0: But, Jeff, look, uh, leave aside sort of beltway pundits such as us. You know, <laughs> you, you've got to you have to make the case that you can beat President Trump, which really is the top priority for most Democratic for sure. voters. And then you look at, say, the latest Mason-Dixon polls out of Florida and Virginia they show in Florida Biden beats Trump 47-45 but Sanders loses to Trump 49-44 and in Virginia which has been a pretty reliable Democratic state in the last couple of elections Biden beats Trump 49-45 and Sanders loses to Trump 45-51 so with numbers like that and a Democratic base that first First and foremost, just wants to get Donald Trump out of the White House. How do you make your argument that people should vote for Bernie Sanders?
2: Well, you know, there's there's polling in other states that obviously shows him doing uh, better. There was a poll in Texas. that showed him ahead of Trump in Texas uh, not long ago. So there's polls all over the place. But this is the key uh, to this, like the the way that we're going to beat Trump, because Trump, in fact, is a very formidable opponent and, you know, strong likelihood that he'll be reelected, frankly. But the way you're going to beat him is by bringing out people who have given up on the political process, by reengaging working class people, young people, particularly young people of color who uh, sat out the race in 2016. So we need to inspire and excite a whole new group of voters. We're going to swell the ranks uh, of the people who go to the polls. And when we do that, we'll beat Trump and take this country back
4: well one you know there's been a ton of discussion about how much youth support you guys have and I think that's a key component of the strategy you're talking about but something you said to me earlier that uh, I found quite interesting was you keep pointing to Bernie's support among Latinos what are you seeing there and what do you think it's coming from
2: well you know it happened actually fairly early in the last campaign that you know what polling our polling certainly show that we won the Latino vote in, in Nevada in 2016 which was the you know the third contest you know, Bernie's uh, personal immigrant story, I think, reson- resonates with uh, Latino voters, you know, the immigrant experience. You know, in many ways, I think Bernie talks about the America that uh, immigrant communities thought they were coming to. And so the sort of aspirational uh, vision that he puts out there, I think, is very appealing to immigrant communities.
1: Jeff, the flip side of uh, the lifting of the so called Bernie blackout is. You're going to start getting a lot more scrutiny from the national press, and obviously, you guys have been through this in another presidential election. But I just have a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you about.
2: Let me address that. Let yeah. me—I'm happy to address your specific question, but let me just okay. address that premise for a second. You know, this notion that sort of Bernie Sanders has not gotten scrutiny yet is absolutely ridiculous. I, you know, it, it happens less now, but I, you know, it used to be you couldn't read a, a an article in a, in a mainstream newspaper without the word socialist appearing like 15 times. David Brock put out every possible attack on Bernie Sanders last time from his age to, to everything under the sun. So, you know, this thing, this notion that Bernie Sanders is not going to scrutiny really is a little bit, I find it a little bit ridiculous. Okay, that being well, said, just, I'm happy to, just, I'm let's, I'm let's, happy to let's, entertain let's, your specific question.
1: You're going to start getting more scrutiny again. I mean, I did note that you got a lot of scrutiny before. But in any event, um, two quick questions. One, over the weekend, the senator told Robert Costa of The Washington Post that the quote is, this is about whether he's going to put out a funding plan for Medicare for All, which Elizabeth Warren did. That apparently has not helped her very much. But the quote that Senator Sanders gave to Robert Costa was, I don't give a number, and I'll tell you why. It's a, such a huge number, and it's so complicated that if I give you an, uh, a number, you and 50 other people
2: would go through it and say, oh,
1: explain that. What, what is he What is he saying there?
2: Well, what he's saying there is – and you, know, you see this attack on the debate stage from people like – Vice President Biden, where he, you know, he pounds this $32 trillion number, you know, while not uh, telling you know, then he says, well, my plan only costs $750 billion. Yeah, because Bernie Sanders is paying for the entire health care system. Joe Biden's not telling people actually that his plan costs $50 trillion and $750 billion because people are still to be paying all of the costs they're currently paying out of their pocket for health care. So, you know, it is a, a long and complicated discussion, and it's very difficult to do in a very short interview time span to sort of compare apples to apples between health care plans. So, you know, I think it's been our, certainly been our uh, experience that there is a tremendous amount of obfuscation on the part of folks who are putting forward these sort of half measures, which are really not going to address the problem of well, people not having access to health care.
1: I mean, I get that point that it's a, it's a hard thing to do on the debate stage and maybe not advisable. But there's isn't there a way, and is this something that you're thinking about, putting out a more detailed plan, putting together some economic columnists, however you do it, and laying it out?
2: Well, he has put he has put forward a list of pay-fors that in the aggregate would pay for Medicare for all. So, you know, that list of pay-fors exists. Apparently, it's not in the format that some people like, but, you know, he, and he has discussed what it's going to cost, you know, individual uh, people in terms of payroll taxes. So, you know, he's been, I think he's been very clear about this. He's the only one who's honest enough to tell people that, in fact, they're going to pay something for health care under Medicare for all. It's going to be way less than they're paying now, but they actually are going to have to pay for it. Everybody else on the debate stage seems to be promising of folks that they're going to get something for absolutely nothing. You're going to get, you're going to pay for 20% of the economy, which is what health care consumes, but no one's going to have to pay anything for it. I mean, that's a little bit ridiculous. So I think he, in fact, has been the most honest about the health care crisis in this country and how we're going to tackle it. And it will mean that folks are going to have to contribute something through their taxes, but it will be Far, far, far less than they are paying now.
1: One more, just really quick question, which is: sure. is 78 years old. He recently had a heart attack. Um, he has not put out all of his medical records. That is true of other candidates as well. Will he put out all of his medical records uh, some, at some point during this campaign?
2: Well, I think you saw he put out a, a, a three, actually three uh, letters from doctors, two cardiologists who have have been monitoring him, as well as his you know his primary doctor who is. Who he has seen for decades is uh, at the U.S. Capitol. And, you know, as those uh, cardiologists noted, he's fully capable and ready to be president of the United States in terms of his physical and mental ability. And I, mean, I don't know, but there's more to say about it other than, you know, I encourage, I know Hunter Walker's been out there on the trail with him. I encourage folks to try to keep up with him on the campaign trail.
0: Jeff, yeah, what does it do the to your, um, what
2: does it do to a and vigor?
0: Right, Uh, Jeff. What do you? What does it do to your campaign plans if you have to spend much of the next month? If the senator has to spend much of the next month sitting in the U.S. Senate uh, in a trial of Donald Trump?
2: Yeah. Well, obviously that's a complicating uh, factor. You know, we are are developing contingencies to deal with that if that's what indeed happens, and that includes you know increased uh, reliance on surrogates to make appearances on his behalf, and uh, as well, you know, when the proceedings get over and the afternoon getting on a plane and flying to iowa and having an event and getting back on the plane and flying back to washington dc to be there for the proceedings the next day and also you know on weekends so uh you know he'll be able to go to certainly to iowa and and new hampshire and south carolina those are easily reached from washington dc it's a little harder to get to nevada and california because of the distance and the time change but uh I'm sure he'll make it to
0: those places. So this look, uh, you know, right now the Senate is at loggerheads over this issue of uh, of witnesses, <laughs> and you have Democrats and uh, sort of lim- liberal pundits in the media attacking Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, for others saying they uh, they are they've clearly biased. They clearly can't take an oath of office, promising to be uh, an oath uh, for the Senate trial, promising to be impartial for that trial. Now, your guy. Senator Senator Sanders has just in the last sort of couple of weeks called President Trump uh, the most corrupt president in the modern history of this country, the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country, true, a patho- true, pathological true. liar, a racist, a sexist, oh, sure. a homophobe. Yep. How could Senator yep. Sanders take the oath that he will be uh, impartial in a Senate trial of Donald Trump?
2: Well, look, everybody who is in uh, going to be there is a U.S. senator elected from one of the two Political parties, and what you have to do is you have to uh, sit there and listen to the evidence and render a judgment about whether the conduct that uh, the president uh, has done is is such that he should be removed from office, and that's. But but you know, that's I, I guess my have to do.
0: I guess my point is with <laughs> comments like that, you really can't go after Mitch McConnell for being uh, partial well, or but, biased yeah, he, on well, uh, in this uh, in this trial.
2: you right, but that's not even we're not even talking about his personal bias. He was talking about. You know working hand in glove with the white house in order to set up the process so you're not even going to have a fair process never mind you know mitch mcconnell can personally believe whatever he wants in his capacity as a senator who will be part of this impeachment proceedings can vote however he wants to vote but you know basically he was talking about rigging the process on the front end you know to help ensure an outcome or to help assure a press outcome in terms of you know, yeah and and, and, Mica- and McConnell so, uh, and made that, the, that's a problem
0: McConnell made the point today that Schumer has been consulting with Pelosi <laughs> and so therefore Pelosi's the prosecutor what's if, if they can consult why can't he consult with the uh, defendant in the trial um, but I think we got one more question for you from uh, uh, Hunter. yeah Jeff I know I know your time is short but um, I just really want
4: to uh,
2: you mean that for the on this call I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes <Powered laughs>
4: only on this call we're, we're not questioning your health records Jeff Um <laughs> But, you know, obviously, I think you guys would say you see Bernie Sanders as a front runner in this race. How many candidates do you think we're down to? And, you know, with uh, the prospect of, of potential escalation with Iran, do you think that dynamic, how do you think that will play out between him and Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, some of the centrists in the field?
2: Well, I mean, we'll have to see how you know how, how that plays out. It's hard to predict right now. But Hunter, you know, in terms of who, how many quote unquote front runners are, clearly there are I would you know, four candidates who are, you know, pol- polling relatively close to one another in the early states. But, you know, you've seen the Andrew Yang sort of moving up a little bit. He obviously raised quite a bit of money. So, uh, you know, you know these things are, as you, you know, the Iowa caucuses give me a tremendous amount of movement the last couple of weeks before people go to the caucus. So, you, you know, I, I hate to say that anybody's out, you know, Amy Klobuchar obviously has, has support in Iowa as well. So I, like, I'm not going to rule anybody out. You know, we take all of our opponents seriously. We don't write anybody off, or we don't, you know, discount anybody because they can do quite, you know, you can do quite well in the Iowa caucuses. Again, like I said, it moves wildly in the last couple of weeks. So,
0: well, thank you, Jeff. And as we've been speaking, right. I just got in uh, in my uh, email box uh, the statement Senator Sanders has put out about the events in the East right now, and I'll just read you uh, a couple of quotes from have This is Sanders speaking. Uh, I have consistently opposed this dangerous path to war with Iran, but we need to do more than just stop the potential of the war. We need to firmly commit to ending the U.S. military presence in the Middle East in an orderly manner, not through a tweet, and we must understand that these wars have cost us so much in blood and in treasure, so I guess that gives us some idea of where Bernie Sanders is coming from on this issue. Jeff, thanks for joining us, and we hope to have you back as the campaign progresses.
2: Happy to do it anytime. Take care. All right, great. Thanks, Jeff.
0: And, Hunter, thanks again to you for being on Skullduggery.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
4: Aya con Dios.
0: Thanks to Yahoo's own Jenna McLaughlin, Zach Dorfman, and Hunter Walker, as well as Jeff Weaver for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sunday at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.